Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Arthur Schopenhauer, in part three of his treatise on the basis of morality, is going to focus on the relationship between compassion, mitleid, and justice, gehechtigkeit, in chapter 17, which is quite long, and we're going to look here at just some of the first aspects that he treats and then put the, the others off for additional discussions. And so he begins chapter 17 by saying, if we consider more closely the occurrence of compassion, which was shown to be the primary ethical phenomenon, it is at once evident there's two clearly separate degrees wherein another's suffering can directly become my motive. In other words, can determine me to do or omit to do something. So compassion, mitleid, should be our motive, our incentive, the thing that is fundamentally driving us. And, and this is going to bring us into conflict, you could say, with other motives that we do have by virtue of being human beings and by virtue of our own unique expression of human nature. So what are these two degrees? These are what are going to yield us the two virtues, as he's going to call them. So they counteract egoistic or malicious motives. That is what we're going to be calling justice right? And we're driven quite often, if not by malicious motives, many of us do have those, we're definitely driven by egoistic ones. And so we have to say no to them, we have to prioritize over them in some ways. And then we can have another person's suffering becoming something that incites us to active help. And this is going to lead to philanthropy, or to loving kindness, mention Liebe, literally the love of humankind. So these are both going to be central and they're both about the suffering of others. And he says that compassion prevents me from causing suffering to another and hence from becoming myself the cause of another's pain. So he's going to talk quite a bit about these two, and he's also going to tell us that the separation between so-called duties of law and duties of virtue, more correctly between justice and philanthropy, results here entirely of itself and testifies to the correctness of the principle. It is the natural, unmistakable, and sharp boundary between the negative and the positive, between doing no injury and helping. And he says the terms that we've used before, duties of law and duties of virtue, also called duties of love or imperfect virtues, these are not the best way to talk about it. Instead, we want to think about the negative as being the virtue, the actual disposition of justice. And we want to think of the positive as the disposition of philanthropy or loving kindness. Now, turning our direction to justice itself, and we'll come back to this distinction in just a, a minute in a different respect. Looking at justice itself, he tells us that we as human beings tend to be inclined to injustice and violence. Why? Because our needs, our desires, our anger and hatred immediately enter consciousness and thus have the right of first occupancy, right? So 
we're aware of our own desires, we're aware of our own drives and stuff like that. When it comes to other people who we can cause to suffer, we are going to be aware of that, you could say, secondhand. He tells us that we, the sufferings of others that are caused by our injustice and violence enter consciousness merely on the secondary path of the representation and only through experience, thus indirectly. So, you know, to take an example, we say something that is deeply hurtful to another person and we don't realize it at the time that we're saying that it's going to be so hurtful to the other person. And then we see, for example, the pained look on their face or their complaints or crying or something like that. And we're like, oh, I, I shouldn't have done that. Well, that is something that we have to become aware of piecemeal, you could say. And we can never be completely sure. Somebody could be faking it. Whereas we ourselves, we're conscious of our own suffering when it happens, right? Although we can hide that from ourselves as well. And so how does justice work? He tells us that the first degree of the effect of compassion, if we actually are feeling it, is that it opposes and impedes those sufferings I intend to cause others by my inherent moral forces. It calls out to me, stop. It stands before the other man like a bulwark prompting him from the injury that my egoism or malice would otherwise urge me to do. So, you know, again, to go back to the example of insulting somebody. So now you know that saying a certain thing to them is going to be hurtful, insulting, perhaps humiliating, and you're still wanting to do it. Maybe out of egoistic motives, you want to put them down so you can be higher up or you want to neutralize them in some way. Or it could be pure malice. You just want to hurt them for the sake of hurting them. Are you driven by envy or something like that? Schopenhauer is willing to call an effect of malice. Well, the compassion stands in the way through this mode of justice saying, don't cause that suffering. And it has to do that precisely because you do intend to cause the suffering. It doesn't have to say it if you don't intend it. Now, he goes on a little bit further and he says, if my disposition is susceptible to compassion up to that degree, it will restrain me wherever and whenever I feel inclined to use another's sufferings as a means to the attainment of my ends. It is immaterial whether that suffering is instantaneous or comes later, whether it's direct or indirect, affected or affected through intermediate links. And so he gives some prime examples here. I will just as little seize another person's property as I shall their person. I shall cause him just as little mental suffering as bodily. I shall therefore refrain not only from every physical injury, but the infliction of mental suffering through mortification, alarm, annoyance, or slander. The same compassion will prevent me from seeking to satisfy my desires at the expense of women's happiness or from seducing another man's wife or even from ruining youths morally and physically by tempting them to commit pederasty. You won't be engaging in sexual improprieties that are, you know, damaging to other people, to their structures of relationships, perhaps to their own psychological developments. So this is very important. Can compassion do this all the time? Well, no. And in many cases, what we need is something a bit more consolidated. Dated. This is part of why we can talk about a virtue of justice. So Schopenhauer brings up rational reflection. He says, rational reflection on this idea of not harming others raises noble dispositions to the firm resolution 
grasped once for all of respecting the rights of everyone, never allowing themselves to encroach on them, keeping themselves free from the self-reproach of being the cause of another's suffering. So we human beings can in fact be just to each other, not just by being provoked immediately by feeling or compassion, but by consolidating it into a disposition raising the noble disposition to resolutions, right? So he talks about how principles and abstract knowledge, they are not the original source or first foundation of morality, but they are, as he says, indispensable to a moral course of life. And he's got this interesting metaphor here. They are the receptacle or reservoir which stores the habit of mind which is sprung from the fount of all morality, a habit of mind that does not flow at every moment, but when the occasion for its application arises, flows along the proper channel. So we've got, you know, you could say affectivity, and we've also got the use of our intellect in a practical way. So principles and abstract knowledge are indispensable. And he goes on a little bit further and he says, self-control is the steadfast adherence to an observance of principles in spite of the motives that act against them. So self-control is really central there as well. He talks about compassion sometimes coming forth in what he calls individual cases. So in particular circumstances, and that has to happen occasionally. Why? Because what rational reflection yields for us is not always going to be as helpful as we'd like. He says, in individual cases, the established maxim of justice shows signs of breaking down. No motive is more effective for supporting it and putting new life into just resolutions than that drawn from the fountainhead itself. So when we want to make sure that our just resolutions, which are part of the rational reflection, is working, we need to go back to the fountain, the origin itself of the motive of compassion. And so he says that this holds good, not merely where it's a question of personal injury, but also where damage to property is concerned. And here he's got some other good examples as well. Nothing will bring us back to the path of justice so readily as the mental picture of the trouble, grief, and lamentation of the loser of property, right? This truth is felt. It often happens. The public appeal for the return of lost money has the assurance added that the loser is poor, a domestic servant, and so on. So when we think about how somebody else is going to be negatively affected, then we can feel compassion for them. So there's a very interesting dialectic here between rationality and compassion going on in this. Now, I mentioned we would come back to this distinction between justice and philanthropy because we should take notice of something kind of boneheaded that Schopenhauer says in this, um, you know, like many other male philosophers, you get the idea that Schopenhauer doesn't understand women very well and is willing to make some super sweeping generalizations about the differences between between men and women. So what he says here is, 
we can find the reason why women are as a rule inferior to men in the virtue of justice and thus of uprightness and conscientiousness. And he says by, you know, contrast, they surpass men in the virtue of philanthropy or loving kindness. And why is this the case? He says the weakness of their reasoning faculty, they're less capable than men of understanding and sticking to universal principles and taking them as a guide. Very debatable. And were Schopenhauer brought here in the present, I think he would probably have to revise his mistaken assumptions. Uh, on the other hand, he says that philanthropy or loving kindness, um, the origin of this is in most cases intuitive and therefore appeals directly to compassion, to which women are decidedly more easily susceptible. And then he says, for women, only what is intuitive, present, and immediately real truly exists. What is knowable only by means of concepts, what is remote, absent, past or future cannot really be grasped by them. So justice is more a masculine virtue, loving kindness more a feminine. We can certainly accept that there are differences in types among people without pegging them necessarily to gender differences, which might be much more cultural or just based in poor empirical observation on Schopenhauer's part. Now, going on with this, Schopenhauer is going to bring up one more really key point. He says that these observations will clarify that however little this appears to be the case at first sight, justice as a genuine voluntary virtue certainly has its origin in compassion. Now, those are both very important qualifying terms. Genuine, actual justice, real justice as a virtue and voluntary, something that we choose for its own sake, right? Valuing is rooted in compassion. It's rooted in compassion in both a direct way and an indirect way. And then he goes on and he says, if, however... Anyone should suppose this soil too poor and meager for that great and really cardinal virtue to be capable of taking root. He should bear in mind the above remarks and remember how small is the amount of genuine, voluntary, unselfish, and plain justice to be found among human beings. He should note how justice always occurs as a surprising exception and its counterfeit. The justice that rests on mere prudence and is everywhere advertised is related to it in quality and quantity as copper is to gold. So taking a little hint from Plato's symposium, he says, I would like to call counterfeit justice dikaiosune pandemos, right? So the vulgar, the common kind of justice. And then contrast to that, the genuine as dikaiosune urania, heavenly justice, right? This is something that Pausanias does within the symposium in his speech, speaking about justice and love. So genuine voluntary justice, it's going to be rare, but it exists. And then throughout the world, we see a facsimile of justice, a counterfeit of justice, something that is as copper is to gold. Now, copper is still useful, right? This is not as good as gold. And we can say that the justice that is done by people out of egoistic motives rather than out of the motive of compassion, it isn't without utility or helpfulness or a role within society of keeping us from degenerating into a war of all against all, but it is not the virtue of justice. It's just the appearance of it. So we see that compassion and justice are going to be connected up with each other in rather 
complex and robust ways. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.